What if? What if the struggle isn't real? What if everything you've been told is impossible is actually deliciously feasible? What if you could work anywhere, travel, find your purpose, all while growing your wealth and not spending it? Welcome to the Struggle Isn't Real podcast. I'm Cody Sanchez Baker, and, and my job here is to share how normal people have self designed their lives, relationships, jobs, and bodies. The question to ask yourself is simply this What if it was easy? Welcome to another episode of the Struggle Isn't Real podcast. Cody Sanchez Baker here, and typically my job on this show is to share with you stories from humans, just like you and I, that are doing incredible things with their lives, that have actionable ideas, tips and tricks for us to implement as we look to take what fuels us and turn it into something profitable and sustainable in our lives. And this week's a little bit different. And this is cool, I think, because since I've been doing this podcast and the blog at CodySanchez.com, I have gotten hundreds of your emails and questions and and sort of wondering how to build businesses, how to build themselves up as an expert, um, and tips and tricks in in what I've learned in life. But this email really jumped out at me. It's from Sarah Durkin, and Sarah is 17 years old. And Sarah sent me a list of questions to answer, perhaps giving advice to my 17-year-old self and someone along her age. And what I thought was interesting is that these questions really are so much more applicable than we think, regardless of our age. These are questions to ask ourselves constantly and questions for reflection. So in this podcast, I'm going to try to answer 10 questions from Sarah, everything from biggest tips for growing personal wealth, to self-help advice, to a few things in between. So I hope you enjoy this episode of A Struggle Isn't Real podcast from one 30-year-old to one 17-year-old. So let's start with the first question. Sarah asks, if you could give your 17-year-old self any advice, what would it be? This advice actually is not just for 17-year-olds, to be frank. It's for certainly anyone in high school, in their teens, or for anyone that's looking to self-define, that's still trying to figure out who they are. And I'm not sure I've met a human yet who isn't trying to figure that out. And here's the advice that I would give. When I was 17 or in high school or in college even, I wish that I would have known that life happens for you, not to you. That if you swap the life happens to you, and instead life happens for you, your entire perspective changes. Because what that makes you realize is that when you get broken up with for the first time, that when you flunk out on your first test, that when girls or boys aren't particularly nice to you in a way that maybe deeply wounds you, instead of holding grudges and negativity and hurt and angst, what you realize is that these things are put in front of you for a reason, and that reason is to help you grow, that life happens for you. And if you take that mentality, if you take a deep breath in anytime something trying is put in front of you, and instead of reacting immediately, you think, how could I use this? In what way could this have a positive impact on my life? And how could this be a good thing instead of a bad thing? How could I change my mind and not get upset by this, but think that perhaps life is giving me this so that I can grow in a certain way? 
If I would have realized that, I think I would have had a lot less heartache. Because I don't think, in the words of Tony Robbins, that you have to have suffering. Pain will happen in life. That is for certain. But just because you're in pain about something doesn't mean you have to suffer over it. You are complicit in the provocation, meaning only you can decide how you want to react to something. Nobody else can get inside your mind except yourself. So that's what I would say to you, Sarah, is first, life happens for you, not to you. And the second thing I would say is, if I had any advice to my 17-year-old self, it would be learn voraciously. Take as many experiences as you can, as often as you can, and ask as many questions as you can. Sometimes as a woman in particular, we're told, well, just get a, wait a minute and I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question for you. Or, you know, guys, you know, pipe down. The rest of the class already knows about this. And I think that's really a shame because at that age, what you should realize is that curiosity is worth its weight in gold. And that any opportunity for you to learn and grow and grow is such a beautiful one that most people around the world don't get that we really as Americans winning the birth lottery did. So if you remember, life happens for you, not to you. And that curiosity and learning is the most precious thing we can do. I think you go far at 17. Next, Sarah asks me, what were your biggest goals and dreams when you were 17? Uh, at 17, actually, uh, I remember pretty specifically, I wanted to be in politics. I um, was a member of our student body uh, government at the time in high school and ran for a few different offices therein and was pretty sure uh, that I wanted to run for public office one day. And so my dream was to do just that. And now it's pretty cool whether you like her or not. I think it's pretty neat that now we actually have our first female running for president. Um, and so that's pretty cool to be able to see that. But that was my biggest dream was I wanted to be on the political arena. Um, then Sarah asks me at, at age 20, uh, at 20, things changed. I went to college and this is something I think really relevant for parents too out there and for students. Um, Nobody else can be responsible for your life except you. And our education system, my mother is a 30-year special education teacher. Um, she's a brilliant woman. She has her master's degree. And we talk a lot about education in my family. And I was so lucky that she prized it so very highly. Um, but the problem with our education system is when you're in high school, you go and take core classes. Um, you learn, you know, biology and math and Spanish, maybe if you're lucky. And maybe you have a job at Hollister or Abercrombie like I did back in the day. And then you go to college. And what do you do in your first year of college? You take some electives, you learn some broad courses, and then you pick the major that may very well define the, the rest of your life and your career trajectory. And the bummer about that is, I think, when we're 17 or 18 or 19 or 20, it's really hard to know what we want to spend the rest of our lives doing if we've never actually reflected on it. So at 20, the part that was beautiful about life for me was that I was able to graduate with a couple of majors. And so I graduated in political science, public relations, uh, journalism. 
and and I minored in Spanish. And what that allowed me to do is I started off in political science. And through this process of learning and engaging, I realized that that was not something I wanted to start off my career doing. And so then I went to public relations. And I started doing public relations and I realized, shoot, that also was not what I wanted to do. And by these sort of trial and errors, at 20, I ended up doing journalism, which for me really translated to communication. And that is what I was passionate about doing. And so at, at 20 years old, I knew that what I wanted to do was communicate with humans. I wanted to engage, persuade, and be a perpetual learner. And that was one of my biggest goals and dreams. Uh, the only thing I would say is here, if you're 20 or 17, I would document it. It's what I did and what I've always done. I used to have the hard copy journal and I would write down every day. Super embarrassing in retrospect, but beautiful for learning thought processes and how to reflect. So I would challenge you to do that now so you can go back and see when you're 30 exactly what you wanted right now at 17. And now I use a system called Evernote, which is all online, which I love to take notes. Um, this is an interesting question. I didn't actually look at this one, Sarah, before you asked the other. Your question here is, what is your viewpoint on a traditional college education versus real world experience? Wow. Well, here's the thing. College to me has gotten a little sideways because we're teaching to the trade now a little bit, I think, and we're teaching to the test. And what I truly believe in from college and any learning experience is I'm a little old school. I think you learn the Socratic method or how to ask questions, how to consider a theory or a thought without accepting it, how to form arguments that maybe you don't even believe in, but how to argue both sides of them, and how to spend four years in reflection, in questioning, in pondering, and in communication with other humans with no bias and no demand except to expand your mind. That is what I think college should be. And so if right now you're considering college, I would say I've never met a human who went to college and regretted it. I think if you can open yourself up to finding a college that really does put forth a liberal arts education of how to think and learn, you will not regret it. You will be a more interesting human because of it. The only downside there is, of course, the cost is huge, and there's a huge problem, I think, with the amount of debt that we require our youngest citizens to take on or their families. So I would consider a way to get scholarships, look for grants, work through college. Um, but I think it's one of the most valuable things that I ever did, and I pursued a master's program later on in life. Um, and had my company pay for it. So I have some blog posts on that. You can look it up. I think the experience with the master's program was almost more important for the network. But when you go to college at 20 or 19 or whatever it is, I think it's hugely valuable because you'll never again in life have a four-year period for most of us where your only goal is to learn. That is such a beautiful thing. So I do think that's extremely valuable. And I think that it is something that Every student should take the opportunity to try to grasp if they can. The next question that, that Sarah asks is, what book has had the most positive influence on your life? Mm. 
you know, I remember back in the day, the smell of the public library, to be honest. It's one of my favorite places in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I grew up. There's a gorgeous fountain right outside of it. It's this little hidden gem of quietness and solitude and infinite learning. And so there are a few books that I'll mention, but what I would say is these days, I mean, we have access to the library of Alexandria at our fingertips for nothing. It costs you zero and it is priceless in its value. So I would say the fact that you're asking about books is brilliant, but latch on to that. I, I don't read the news ever. I don't watch the news ever. Um, all I do is read books from what I believe to be great thinkers. And with that, I feel like you learn so much more than spending your day through a Twitter scroll. So the most influential books on my life have been, let, let's call it three threefold. A, from a philosophical standpoint and a way to think about the world, Letters to a Young Contrarian by Christopher Hitchens is one of my absolute favorites. It helps you be okay with being a little weird and that it is part of the democratic process to question and rebel a little bit and that rebellion is kind of okay. That book is fantastic and not very long of a read. If you want a very long read, but what one of my friends, Amy Brothers, who's fantastically successful as the head of uh, the West Coast um, for an investment firm. She, I recall, when I was first starting out working, actually, she gave me a book. Um, she was actually quite hard on me. I'll, I'll call Amy out on this. When I first met her, I, I came on to the investment desk and um, she gave me a really hard time and, you know, kind of pushed me more than I was comfortable with at that point. But Amy and I are now fast friends and she's had a profound influence on my life. And Amy, I'll never forget the day, um, sent me her Bible, which is Atlas Shrugged by um, Anne Rand. And um, this book has had one of the biggest influences on my life and not in a political way, which is how a lot of people think about it. A lot of the conservatives use this book as a conservative manifesto, of which they have some points. Um, but I also see it as like, it is a calling for the beauty of work and the beauty of laboring in something that you love, which I think we were built here, we were put here to, to do. And so if you want a book to see the beauty of labor, the beauty of work, the beauty of purpose, and the beauty of finding other humans that share your purpose, I highly recommend Atlas Shrugged. And then the last book is one that my husband is tired of ad nauseum by now, um, called The 4-Hour Workweek. And this is by an author by the name of Tim Ferriss. And this book I can't say enough about because what Tim helps you do is as you get more responsibility in life, um, you can get bogged down in the details quite easily. And what Tim helps you do is cut out the noise, focus on what matters, and take it back to Pareto's principle, which is that 80% of, let's say, the good things in our life, 80% of our success comes from 20% of our activities. So focus on the right 20%. The next question that she asks is, where is your favorite place to find inspiration? Hmm. Well, I'm a huge believer in the power of place. So I'm a huge believer in surrounding yourself with beautiful things because I think beauty inspires beauty and creativity inspires creativity. And so in as much as I can, I curate the things that I surround myself with. I don't have a lot of clutter. I like things clean and I like things that have meaning 
but that I find beautiful and that mesh well together. And so you'll see that in my house. Um, But there is actually, there's a place behind my house here in Dallas, Texas, where I go for a run almost every day that I'm here. And there are trees that arch over the pavement and they kind of whistle in the wind because Dallas is very windy. And I think there's a beauty to being lost in meditation. Some some types of meditation for me are movement-based, like running. Some are seated-based. But what what my inspiration place is, is is running along that path, listening to the trees at dusk or dawn, my two favorite types of day. The next question Sarah asks is, what are your two to three biggest tips for killing self-doubt and gaining confidence? Yeah, this is huge. Um, If you're able to consistently beat fear or face fear or continue to move even though you are fearful, the world is your oyster. You can do just about anything. So my biggest tips are threefold. One, Every single day, do something that scares you. God, this is an oldie but a goodie, and it's a cliche, but nobody does it. If you are able to do one thing every day that scares you, things will change. So let me give you some examples of things you can do. At your age, you can send out emails like this. Send emails to people that are much more important than I am. See if they respond. Hey, try picking up the phone and calling them. I don't know, maybe uh, somebody who you think very highly of is Warren Buffett. Try to get Warren Buffett's secretary on the phone. Do one thing every day that makes you kind of uncomfortable and maybe sweat a little bit. The the second thing I would say is I take quotes and I write them down like my own Bible. And anytime I hear a phrase that sort of trumpets to me, that has that unique wavelength that goes out to me that I just, I, it touches me. I write those down. And so anytime I'm feeling fearful, uninspired, stressed, I don't say fearful a lot. I probably would say anxious or stress. I go back to those quotes and I read the words of the greats. And with the sound of somebody else's bravery in my ear, I'm able to move on. And the third, let's talk about self-confidence. For the third thing to kill fear or doubt or to build self-confidence, I would say... The best way that I've learned to build self-confidence is to think about the things that are inside of you that you know to be true, that are powerful and unique, and that you are uniquely skilled at. And find that thing inside of you that you know should be shared with the world and you know you're exceptionally good at. And when you find that thing that's not the job that you have or the school that you went to or the person you're dating or how you look, you realize that if you lose all those things, if you lose your job and the person you're with and how you look and where you work and where you went to school, if none of those things can define you, but you have that inner skill and trait and voice, self-confidence comes. And so I think that means reflect. Reflect on what you are uniquely skilled at, and that belief in yourself will carry you forward. Okay, I love this next question. Um, This one reminds me of one of of the members of my team, one of the 
first people I hired at this last company I'm at. Um, and the question is this. I am a naturally very optimistic and positive person. Consequently, I smile a lot in caps, she says. In business, smiling is often a disadvantage when overused. What are your biggest tips on controlling smiling to use it as an advantage? This is a, this is a funny one. Um, you know, I, I'll tell a story. So April Reppy, she's a member of my team in Latin America. She told me a story about how when she moved from Arizona to Philadelphia, she was walking the streets and April has a perma smile on, right? Her face is always just lit up. She has a beautiful energy about her. So she's walking the streets of Philly and she remembers getting stopped five or six times and people would say to her like, why are you smiling? What are you looking at? And so eventually she like, you know, would kind of try to turn down her little face um, because it made other people uncomfortable. And here's my take on this, Sarah. If you are a happy person, a person that smiles a lot, then smile. Don't worry about it being a disadvantage in any way, shape, or form. If you are good at your job, if you are capable, confident, you work hard, you're curious, and you do the job, Smiling is nothing but an advantage because it's contagious and people want to be around happy people. So I would say anybody that tells you to smile less, tell them to beat it, first of all. And you can say that with a smile on your face if you'd like to. But tell them to get lost. And um, all you have to know is that you don't want to be goofy, right? You don't want to be taken lightly uh, by making jokes all the time or playing too immature, you don't want to do that, but having a smile on your face while you're saying something important and profound, nobody can tell you that that's a disadvantage. Okay, question number eight. How do you maximize your day? Ooh, Sarah, this is a big one. Let me t- do it this way. What's the one thing that changed everything for me as far as prioritization and being able to leverage my day to the max. The biggest thing that's made a difference in my day is disregarding, eliminating the fallacy of multitasking. Anybody who tells you they're a great multitasker is full of it because multitasking does not work. So what that means in my day to day is that I use time blocking very specifically. When I'm writing for my book or my blog, I turn off all of my electronic devices, the internet is off, and I am in the zone, maybe with music on. When I need to be calling clients, I try to focus exclusively on that. Because there is a groove that happens. You get into a workflow, just like you do when you're running or anything else in life, that if you have to stop and go and stop and go, you don't you aren't nearly as productive even if you spend the same amount of time on a task. If you have to move in and out of it, your brain cannot switch quickly enough. So I would say focus on one task at a time and time block. One of my favorite tricks is I I actually never pick up my phone pretty much ever. You can ask my husband or my employees. I will never just pick up a phone call. If somebody calls me, I will always listen to the message and check the emails. If it can be handled by email, I try to do it by email. And if somebody says, hey, can you call me in an email? I ask them to preface what they would like to chat about on the call in the email. And in that way, you are able to control your time as opposed to being controlled by time. If you let somebody else determine what you work on throughout the day, you'll never be successful. 
And the last question that Sarah asks is this, biggest tips for building wealth? Hmm. This is another really interesting question, especially if you are 17. It's a fantastic question for a 17-year-old, really for anyone. Um, The number one question, the, the number one thing I think for building wealth is, first of all, in order to have money, you must understand how money works. And so what what does that mean? That means, one, you should probably have an investment account. You should understand what the stock markets are. You should understand how to invest and what risk reward means in this way. You should research the companies that are out there in this way. People will say, save, save, save. Absolutely, you should save, but understand money. I'll tell you a story. I was a journalist and I was in Latin America. I was in Mexico actually writing stories about human trafficking and in, in La Ciudad de Muerte, which is Juarez. It was the city of death and it's the city of murdered women um, in particular. And I was writing these gut-wrenching stories along the border and I, I was jaded and it was hard for me at that time. And, and that's when I realized that maybe journalism was not the right pursuit for me because I wasn't having the impact I wanted to have. And I was becoming a little bit of a calloused human being. And so I thought about it a lot. I was alone writing stories quite a bit. I was in Mexico. I was in rural areas without cell phone reception. And I took some time to think, okay, if I want to make an impact on the world, How do I do it? I thought I did it by telling people stories. And for some people, that is the way to do it. But for me, it didn't feel right. So I said, okay, what changes things? Power, okay. How do you get power? Well, powerful people typically have money, right? And where the money flows, the power flows, and where the power flows, change happens. And so for me, I said, I want to consider finance. Because if I can understand money, then I can understand power, then I can donate to my causes and ultimately perhaps have the money and the power to change things. Because I think it is a fallacy for us to not be financially free, have financial freedom and try to help others. I think that's backwards. I think you have to try to have financial freedom so that then you can really give back and make a difference. So I would say understand money. At a young age, if you can open an investment account, if you can learn about how to accumulate wealth, it's much more simplistic than you would imagine in this way, then I think you go very far. And the last thing I'll say is is this. The most important thing that I've ever done in my career in any way, shape, or form is what this email represents. It's reaching out to humans that I find interesting, that I find have skills I want to grow, and asking them questions. Because the thing is, if you don't ask, you will never receive. So my motto has always been, always ask. And if somebody says no, it really just means not now. So with that, thank you all for listening today. I hope this was helpful. And I'm so excited to hear all of the questions that you continue to throw my way.